0: Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. Thanks so much for joining us. And if this is your first time, I invite you to hit subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever else you might be listening to the show. All right, everyone, the holidays are upon us. And by the time you hear this, we will be in a new year. And so you know what that means. That means it's time for us to explore the best of machine learning in our annual AI Rewind 2021 series. Today, I have the pleasure of being joined by Georgia Gyeoksari. Georgia is a research scientist at Meta AI, and we're here to talk about all things computer vision. Georgia first joined us on the show last year for episode 408, where we talked about her work with PyTorch 3D. Georgia, it is so wonderful to see you again and welcome back to the Twimal AI podcast.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me again. It's an exciting episode and I'm glad to be back for it. So as Sam said, I am a research scientist at Facebook, AI Research, and I work on a lot of things in computer vision, but with a focus and a passion for recognition. And I feel that we're going to cover a lot of that today and see where what exciting work has happened in the last year and what is ahead of us.
0: Awesome, awesome. Well, this year has been a big year for the company that you work at. It's not Facebook anymore; it's Meta. <laughs> so there's that, and it's been a big year for computer vision as well. And looking forward to digging into that. I figured we would start by just talking a little bit about kind of broad brushstrokes. What's your feel for how we did in 2021 with computer vision? What were the the main accomplishments and, and sentiments in the field?
1: Yeah, I mean, and this is a, a fantastic question, first of all, and of course, subjective. So I'm gonna try to sort of give my input and like and discuss exactly why I'm mentioning these works. But as you said, Sam, it's, it's been, I think a very good year with exciting new work, new work that has actually been very impactful and that has shifted the field in many directions. And so, I'm going to mention maybe three highlights that I have uh, noticed being extremely important in the last year. And first, I'm going to I'm going to start perhaps with graphics, which is not exactly within computer vision, but uh, very nicely tied to it. And the explosion of NERFs. So, NERF, which stands for Neural Radiance Fields, have had a tremendous impact in computer vision, 3D, and graphics. It's a wonderful work, simple, that has unlocked something that graphics people have actually been working for quite a while. And the innovation there has been a lot with introducing implicit functions and volumetric rendering. And the goal is to reconstruct photorealistically a scene from a few images. Well, a few is actually... A little underestimated. It's like it's actually a hundred or two hundred images, so it's it's still okay. a lot of images. But the effect is that you can photorealistically synthesize the scene from any viewpoint given these two hundred images.
0: I just wanted to jump in and make sure I'm understanding that the idea is that you've got some 3D scene and you're not building it up from kind of a CAD system or a graphics tool or something like that. Rather, you collect. Just pictures of the scene from various angles and through the the Nerf process, you're able to create a 3D model of the scene.
1: So let's say you have, you know, a scene, let's say your, your room right there. And so what you will do is that you will go around and collect many images. It actually works well when it's 360 views. So let's say you have a little scene at the center of the room and you just take pictures around it. And of course, this is going to be your own picture. So they're going to be from discrete set of viewpoints. So what Nerf will do is that it will take these images, it will try to extract the camera poses. This is going to happen offline. So with systems like Map, which have now been very well established, and having posed images of that scene, it will try to reconstruct A 3D representation. Now that 3D representation is not explicit. So you can't really, it's not a mesh or a a voxel. It's an implicit representation. And all it does is that it allows you to shoot rays and then project those rays back from a novel viewpoint. So now you are building the system that can not only understand the scene from the discrete viewpoints that you collected with your photo, with your camera, but it will allow you to reconstruct the scene from novel viewpoints outside of the existing ones. And it does that by maintaining, you know, the photorealism and the detail of the scene that you're capturing.
0: And so you that the N in Nerf is for neural. Is it a deep learning-based technique?
1: Yeah. So the authors there use a sequence of linear like, like actually perceptors. So, so it's an MLP. So you have a little neural network that maps a 3D point, XYZ, and a direction to color, RGB, and density. The density is the occupancy, basically, whether you know that point is occupied by the scene or not, or it's empty space. Mm -hmm. This is all that it's doing. And with this information, you're able to collect that on Array. So Array is a collection of 3D points and render that from a novel viewpoint.
0: Got it. And so is this a technique that originated this past year in 2021? Or is it a technique that kind of found its its voice from prior years?
1: Yeah. So I think that the the work came out in 2020. Of course, you know, this is something that we need all to realize that nothing actually comes, you know, to life out of nowhere. So of course, it's based on previous work. Of course, it's motivated by previous works. I think that uh, where this work has actually innovated is this, inter- this using this implicit functions along with volumetric rendering, and it has since actually created a huge impact because, of course, it was the the first paper came in 2020. But there's a lot of things to fix. Um, you know, how can you do this with fewer views? How can you do this faster? How can you do mm. this way by consuming less memory? So it has actually created a lot of follow up works and step by step improving this method. Even as we speak, there is like tons of papers coming out even on a daily basis
0: are we seeing its impact primarily in terms of academic papers or is it something that you know we've already seen implemented in different applications
1: but yeah, so I think that for now, I definitely believe that it is mostly focused on for research, especially while the community tries to improve it, make it more, you know, user friendly, but also have it consume less memory or in faster. But I do believe that we will see. Nerves will revolutionize the rendering. So any applications that now involves rendering, I believe, will move into NERVS very fast. I'm talking about Hollywood, you know, visual effects, making movies. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about the gaming industry, like video games. I think they will also move towards something like a neural representation for rendering. And the reason for that is, I think, very simple. So the method is simple. It does require a little bit of our expertise. And so we might actually see a shift of sort of what knowledge you will need in order to make this happen. But it is a lot easier to adapt to new scenes. So you need to do less work if you want to do, you know, move to different scenes faster. So I do think that it will actually have a tremendous impact Not now, but in five years, maybe if we do this podcast again, we can revisit that question. (laughs)
0: <laughs> and when I think of the, of rendering, one of the things that I think about is in the case of games, like rendering like from light sources and, and things like that, is the idea that this Nerf method solves this particular problem of reconstructing the scene from images or that techniques that were developed for that problem also have implication in kind of the broader, more broadly in graphics and in rendering, like point source rendering, that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think they do. I think they, they definitely are. We're seeing more and more. Actually, we're seeing the impact of nerve expanding very much. So, you know, that initial application that we've seen and we are now seeing how they can incorporate even dynamic scenes like, you know, moving scenes. We are also seeing how to change lighting, how to change materials. We're also seeing how you can hallucinate with them. The field is ever expanding. This is why it's an exciting field to be in. I'm sure graphics people are very thrilled because there's a lot of work to do. So yeah, I I feel that we haven't even seen the full impact of NERS yet and what they can do. What we know, know is that the representation is powerful. We know the volumetric rendering is impactful. The combination of these two ideas, I think will lead to a lot more innovation.
0: Awesome. So that is a innovation happening on the graphics side. I think your next point is maybe closer to home for machine learning and computer vision. And it's a big one that has a lot of people talking and it involves transformers, not the robots, of course, but the transformer networks that we all know and love. What are you seeing there?
1: Yeah, uh, I mean, this has definitely been a highlight for 2021 computer vision. We have seen uh, Transformers uh, finally coming into computer vision. Transformers is actually not in natural language processing, NLP. Researchers there have been working with Transformers for a few years now, but they have finally made it into computer vision. And it has been an exciting times because we now sort of are seeing this uh, line of work where we are slowly replacing CNNs with transformers and for you know various recognition tasks. And in particular, we've also seen what is exciting about transformers in computer vision is their impact when it comes to working with extremely large scale data. So it's still quite unknown to us whether transformers work well in the low data regime. This is something that is the answer is not out yet. But we definitely know that for large data, we're talking hundreds of millions of images and more transformers are quite impactful.
0: And is the idea that transformers can create more robust representations based on lots of data than convolutional networks?
1: Yes. So again, this is uh, we don't quite know, you know, and like theory behind these things is kind of always unclear. But the main uh, sort of highlight is that um, so CNNs, which is the predominant sort of tools that we used before to represent our visual inputs, had inductive biases. And this comes from exactly the structure of convolutions and the image grid. Now, transformers take a completely different approach. They actually treat images like a sequence of tokens. So this can be patches of images, so like small neighborhoods of the image. Mm-hmm. And the only inductive bias that comes into transformers is through this serialization, as you would say, uh, of the image and the pose embedding that comes in when we are processing these inputs. But other than that, everything, all operations are sort of global with an attentions being cast into a, these representations. Presentation. So there is no other inductive biases in these networks whatsoever. So that means that they have the potential to be a lot more powerful because you're constraining them less. But in order to achieve that, you need more data. So it is a much closer to actually having a true function approximators, like we you know what we say, like MLPs are great function approximators. But with CNNs, that was a little bit taken away because of that particular structure. And now transformers are bringing this back to life, which is an exciting, exciting, and has proven also to work for images.
0: And how would you characterize where we are? Are we in the, you know, just kind of demonstrating that it's possible to make it work stage or have transformers in computer vision demonstrated, you know, state of the art results or, you know, either better results on known tasks or tasks that we were doing pretty well on or, you know, allowing us to perform tasks that we weren't able to perform well with CNNs. Mm
1: -hmm. I love that question. And (laughs) I hope that my answer is not going to anger people, but you know, it's a great question and I hope, and I wish we asked it actually more often. Mm. So, you know, Before I answer that, I'm just going to go a little bit to the NLP world and say why I think Transformers have had a tremendous success. Mm -hmm. I think it's partly due to two reasons. First is that in NLP, uh, you can actually get a lot of data. And that's what works like Bird have shown, where you, you know, kind of crawl the web and you get all sources of text data. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of that. There's a lot of that out there. Yeah. And now you show how, and it can be anything, you know, any text whatsoever, whatever content, and you feed that to the beast called Transformers and it builds a representation. So that's fantastic and a first great milestone. And the second one is that they have all these fantastic tasks, diverse tasks, like question answering, text generation, their tasks are endless and they are very different from each other. And they have shown that even in those very diverse tasks, having a global representation coming from self-supervised learning with a lot of data helps all these tasks significantly. Now in vision, in in (laughs) computer vision, things are not quite like that. Folks that
0: follow computer vision probably have a sense for where this is going. (laughs)
1: <laughs> Correct. So, you know, we are kind of in a, in a weird awkward phase where we kind of want us to sort of replicate that line of work from NLP. We're very much inspired and in looking up to them. But we don't have exactly. First of all, we don't have a big data set. Our biggest data set is something like ImageNet. I'm talking about public data set here, mm-hmm. uh, something like ImageNet, which is 1 million images. And ImageNet has been a fantastic data set. It has served the community for 10 years. But the problem with ImageNet is that, first of all, it's been around for not quite a while. It's a frozen data set, so nothing changes. So as we develop new ideas on a data set that is constant and kind of frozen in time, we tend to sometimes our ideas overfitting on that data set. And mm-hmm. a lot of the gains that we see in ImageNet don't actually transfer. And that makes sense. You know, we've been dealing with this data set for a while now. I would actually say that maybe we've trained more models on pixels on ImageNet, but, you know, I'm not going to get there. And then the other question, of course, is what are our downstream tasks that we're showing that performance in? And... This is another sort of sore point for us computer vision people, where we're also seeing a little bit of, you know, kind of sad state where we, you know, we have our object detection and maybe our segmentation, but they're all essentially classification tasks. We don't have the richness in output and in tasks that NLP has. Our pre-training is classification, our downstream tasks are classification. So it's really hard to tell if we're actually making progress or not. So this is something I think that is for the community to think about.
0: And I guess a couple of reactions to that one is maybe the, the second one informs the first, but there's classification. But then is the idea that all of the complex problems that we think of, like you know, bounding boxes and all these other things that kind of just boil down to classification. So at the end of the day, it's all classification, even if it you know, looks more complex.
1: Correct. That's that's absolutely true. And I mean, our most complex task, I would say maybe, is object texture because it involves sort of maybe predicting intermediate boxes. And then on top of that, you want to predict, classify the object type or maybe predict other 2D properties by classifying the pixels within those boxes. Mm -hmm. But even that is cast as a classification problem.
0: And what about things like VQA, visual question answering? Is that more, do you think of that more of an NLP task than a vision task or...
1: Yeah, it's, again, unclear. The only thing I have to say there is that, and this was also a point made by, you know, CLIP, a a great paper that came out last year, Mm -hmm. is that even there, the data sets are very small and we really can't Mm -hmm. tell how effective these methods are because we really don't have a good sense of these tasks. You know, I mentioned CLIP, which is a prime example that showed that all the gains for transformers came when they downloaded that huge data set of theirs, like I think it was 250 million image text pairs. We don't exactly know the source where the data set is from, but we know it's from the web. And they were only able to show that amazing property of capturing jointly images and text when training on such a huge data set. So this is sort of what we aspire to get to, having training on such large images. And of course, that comes with a lot of other questions about, you know, are we doing our due diligence and making sure that this is a good data set in terms of ethics, in terms of like content? Like, are we making sure that it's an unbiased data set and so forth, which brings, of course, new challenges. But I feel that Mm -hmm. for we need to move to that scale or otherwise we're going to kind of be stuck in our little ImageNet sort of standard regime, which is not a good state to be in.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think the the data set side of that was my second question. And that was, we, you know, we hear about and see on the one hand, we hear about and see new image data sets, you know, all the time, they tend to be specialized and fairly small, you know, on the other side, just like NLP had access to the web vision has access to the web. There are tons of images on the web. Do you think that in order to get beyond kind of image net and classification, you know, we need to define like unsupervised problems or semi-supervised problems beyond just kind of simple label, you know, supervised learning types of problems? Is that the big, you know, one of the big barriers?
1: Yeah, I think that's definitely one big barrier. Um, You know, the problem with vision and actually with all data sets is that collecting a large scale data set by crawling the web and just releasing it is almost impossible. And maybe for a good reason, as in, you know, you have to make sure that you have consent from the creators of the images to actually release them. You also want to make sure that, you know, we are now entering the stage in AI where it's no longer opportunistic. We need to be very cognizant of the data set we're using, the models we're putting out there, how they can, like, maybe they can have potential harm. And mm-hmm. so these are all aspects of our work and we're responsible for it. It's not like someone else is responsible. So there is actually releasing and collecting and releasing a large data set uh, is is a huge responsibility that comes in a a lot of work. And that might be a roadblock to seeing larger data sets coming out. I don't have a solution to that problem, but I feel Mm -hmm. that, you know, if there is motivation to go there, I think we'll make that happen. And I think that we also need, and this is maybe my own personal opinion, we need to rethink the problem that we're solving, these pretext tasks that you know, are commonly referred to as sort of the task that you try to solve either in self-supervised learning. For example, in BERT, it was filling in the, like, you know, masking words and filling them in. We've mm-hmm. seen recently uh, work from actually, you know, my lab and Kaiming and uh, colleagues where they do the same do the same thing, but they're trying to, they mask out patches of the image and they try to fill them in. This is a great task, but it is still, still sort of constrained to be on predicting pixels. We need to enrich our these pre- pretext tasks if we want to maybe solve for richer tasks, downstream tasks, moving beyond classification. I don't think that having a simple pretext test will solve complicated tasks down the line, like you know maybe 3D reasoning or 3D understanding, which is a field that I've been working on. Mm-hmm. I do think that there is limitation in transferring that. So we need to account for that. And so I think it's a good first step. I think that we just need to broaden our horizons a little bit and what problems we're solving, how we're solving and how we're thinking about building representations, either through self-supervised learning or through supervised learning with labels, but move out of this you know, image to single object label, let's say. And here's mm-hmm. where Clip was fantastic, because that's exactly the point where text is richer Contains richer information than just a label, and that's what they showed. They showed that that creates a great representation if you're trying to, you know, jointly capture text with images.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why don't you take a few moments to, you know, more deeply introduce Clip and, and why you think it was so exciting?
1: Oh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. So. Clip is this work from uh, the OpenAI team, and basically their their premise. Th- there's a lot of technical content that you know I will not, maybe will not, you know, spend time describing here. But big picture is that they wanted to build a representation, a rich representation, moving beyond your classical images to object labels type of training to get to those representations. So. They know that text contains a lot of information and they also know that images are important visual descriptors of these texts. And so it makes sense to sort of combine them and build a joint representation and see what you can learn by reasoning about these two different modalities together. So for the, that was the first innovation, just thinking along those lines of pairing images with richer descriptors mm-hmm. not, than just single words. And then the second innovation is that they did this by optimizing with a contrastive uh, by contrastive learning instead of prediction. You know, one way to do this is to build a presentation where you take in an image as input and maybe predict the the sentence as output, and we know that has been the how things have been done predominantly in the field, but there is difficulty there because the task is actually difficult in predicting. In order for you to predict the right sentences, you need a big capacity model. So what is a lot more friendly and turns out also friendly for optimization and robust is to actually train, embed these two modalities, the the sentence and the image, embed them with, you know, separate neural networks, and then train them so that these the embeddings of the sentence of the image actually are close. So by minimizing a similarity, I think in this case, I think they use the cosine similarity, if I'm not mistaken. So the pair, the sentence and the image that correspond together should be close in that embedding space. And any other pairs coming from the whole dataset should be far in the embedding space. So this is what they did. And of course, there's a lot of technical details on how to make that work, how to train that. Of course, there's the corpus is, is huge. And then they showed that you can actually you can actually get really richer presentations through this way, and this mm-hmm. is sort of and why it's exciting for a person like me, even though I'm not an NLP, is that it shows exactly that that we need to move beyond our single label, you know, regime mm-hmm. into richer either richer outputs or either in. Text description space, or maybe also in three D space. That's another modality that I think is important to to start thinking about. I actually think that after, well, I would say the clip is definitely my favorite paper of the last two years.
0: Oh wow! Uh, what are so 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 far? Clip and Nerf. There's sounds like several papers that have evolved the Nerf method. What right. were some of your other favorite papers in vision this year?
1: Oof. Um, I feel that Envision, I, I want to say that I have enjoyed a lot of the follow up work after Clip. I'm going to mention this awesome paper that came out recently from Rana Hanukkah, if I'm pronouncing her name right, from Chicago, where she is trying to, if the team there, they're using the Clippers presentation and they're trying to build 3D models with texture that look like the sentence. For example, mm-hmm. like, they, I think they have like, lawyer as one potential like sentence and then they transform a human mesh to look like a lawyer like kind of like a mean face and a cost like a suit wearing (laughs) so so that was like a really like i I have enjoyed seeing all these fun applications coming up after a clip than just you know it's not just about benchmark and you know beating numbers but like fun things that you can do with these representations and then of course i think that a highlight in computer vision after beyond that was I, I definitely the Transformers like world of VIT, which was the first you know, approach to make transformers work for images, swin transformers from Microsoft that showed how you can actually go beyond ImageNet and make that work for other computer vision tasks. Uh, where you know the innovation there is that they're trying to do things in, at multiple scales and multiple resolutions in order to capture the variety of the objects in images. Uh, I would, I think that I would highlight these these works. Yeah.
0: And you mentioned kind of this analogy to the the Bert task, where you kind of that close completion in text. And you mentioned kind of patch completion and images. Is that the kind of the fundamental premise of the way that transformers are being applied in computer vision? Is that is, is that what the ViT paper is about? Or
1: so the ViT paper is a is a purely supervised approach. So you know okay. where you you're taking an image, you're breaking it down into sixteen for sixteen patches, and then you feed it through a transformer net, a transformer network. Uh, an encoder purely to, to get mm-hmm. to cla- for classification. So it's supervised like on ImageNet or, you know, they're bigger. I think they also show results in their inter- internal Google dataset, but it's it's for classification supervised learning. We have also seen a lot of use of transformers for self-supervised learning. And this is where the patch completion comes in that I mentioned. And this is how to make how to use transformers for self-supervised learning, which is actually a big topic in computer vision today. So these are the sort of two modes of work.
0: Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. You mentioned that the way folks were evolving, that we kind of started with, there was an initial paper that kind of demonstrated that transformers could work in, in vision and there have been subsequent papers. Is there a clear kind of next thing that has to happen in order for it to be the the breakout success that it was in NLP? Or is it more just lots of problems and the community kind of rallying around those problems and, and making progress paper by paper?
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm going to come out and say it. I think we need to rethink everything we're doing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes, I think that it will entail us breaking away from that boring regime we're at with ImageNet. We like we need to move beyond that. Uh, we need to stop worrying less. I'm kind of sick of seeing papers that are just table after table after table with one percentage point of performance. You know, sorry, I don't want to be, like, bitter or mean, but, like, who cares to some degree, right? I mean, benchmarks are not there for us to beat them to death and burn TPU hours and, you know, (laughs) melt the ice in uh, Antarctic in order to get 1% on on these data sets. Benchmarks are there for us to test ideas quickly, see if they work, and then move beyond that. Mm-hmm. So I think we'll need to break out of that of that sort of desire that we have to produce more papers with more tables yeah. and more numbers that are not substantial. And we need to rethink a lot. We need to be more creative in what we're solving and how we're solving it, how we're using these data sets. Even simple data sets with single labels can be used in very creative ways. And of course, we need to also move beyond that. I think video is a fantastic data source that we need to start exploring better. Again, video right now in computer vision is predominantly used for classification isn't that bizarre like video so you're taking this video that wow. has so much information that there's so many things going on and you say running you know it it it's, it's so it, it's so sad it, there's more things to it so and we need to start exploring it's right there it's right in the pixel so and we have we we know maybe we have ideas how to do it it might take a little longer to get there and not meet the next cbpr deadline, but I do think that <laughs> we need to rethink, reevaluate, and maybe get more creative on how we're we're working with these data sets. Mm-hmm. Did that cover <laughs> your question?
0: No, you, you, you did in a sense, uh, I guess, and not to further belabor the, the ImageNet point, but I think it's interesting that this data set that has in so many ways kind of embodied the the success and the moment that we're experiencing, right? The ImageNet right. moment in right. machine learning, deep learning, computer vision, all of that. It's, it's almost like it's a victim of its own success in a very strange way.
1: I, I Yeah. I think that ImageNet is, so I think that it's always important to sort of step away from our everyday and kind of see where we're at. So ImageNet was a data set, and, and this is no attack to the data set. The data set is fantastic. It's our, it's an attack to us, right, as scientists. So ImageNet came out uh, 10 years ago at a time when we actually didn't have, have neither good tools nor good data sets. And it also came out at the time when we had this explosion of the the, in the industry, like the Google and the Facebooks, that we're seeing a huge amount of user data being uploaded, and they had immediate needs to address specific problems, like they wanted to see, to make sure that they don't have the images don't contain violence, pornography, child pornography, you know, all these things that you need to understand in in contents Mm -hmm. immediately. And of course, also business purposes down the line, you know, how to cater to users better by understanding their content and what, you know, they post and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So ImageNet served a fantastic purpose at the time because we actually needed to build our content understanding research to get to that point. And ImageNet was a fantastic fit. And it was, it found itself even in like the progress that found found itself a uh, spot in industry and, you know, it's being used. And now industry has built its own internal data to make that happen because based on the, on the nature of their user data, but In research, we're still kind of, you know, stuck with sort of that paradigm. But now we're 10 years later. Now the needs for what we need to to get to, we're moving past content understanding. My company just announced they want to build Metaverse. Metaverse is this extremely complicated task, extremely like hard milestone to get to. Definitely, you're not going to accomplish it by classification, let me tell you. So... These are new needs, right? And it sets a completely different environment in what we need to be working in and working on. And I'm not saying that we should be working on, you know, making metaverse happen, but it sort of dictates what are the interesting problems? You know, AR, VR, that's another great topic that we hadn't really been discussing 10 years ago, but now we we are there. So we have yeah, more problems because we live in a completely different time.
0: Is it clear to you what types of problems and uh, approaches we need in computer vision and machine learning broadly to enable a metaverse-like vision?
1: Oof, interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that it will, I, th- I think many, many things. I think and what is exciting about metaverse or the metaverse, you know, types of projects is that it's definitely going to be a combination of s- software and hardware, Mm -hmm. That builds a new potential collaboration in these completely different domains of science. I don't, I mean, I feel that we could be discussing this for hours and hours, but it's definitely will involve us moving into the 3D space, us being able to understand in 3D space, us being able to generate uh, content in 3D. So I think we're going to be moving towards, definitely towards 3D, definitely towards dynamic uh, sort of capturing just objects and scenes while they're moving and changing in time. And I think that it will also involve different modalities. So we need; it's not only going to be a matter of RGB streams. It will Sound will come into play. I think that depth, maybe from depth sensors, will come into play. This is a different modality. So I think it's going to be sort of a combination of having to put in together a lot of work from different domains.
0: Yeah, that... that- Last point you raised is something that I also wanted to bring up, and that is, and maybe Clip is an example of this, but one thing that I've heard a lot about this year is uh, interest in multimodal types of problems, you know, whether it's text and images, text and video, audio and images. Are you seeing that as well? And are there any interesting things that are on your radar there.
1: Yeah. Uh, and I want to say, I mean, this is completely true and it makes sense, right? I mean, these are all modalities that come from or are derived from the same sort of underlying world, the text and the audio, mm-hmm. everything, everything describes that world that we are so desperate to understand. And here, I would say that the reason why we've seen like a lot of work coming out is, again, thanks to Transformers. I think this is another benefit of Transformers, not just the gain in performance that we can debate, or it might not be as substantial, but it's definitely the fact that it has unified how we are building models to consume these different modalities. Before, audio had its completely different line of work, completely different Mm -hmm. architectures, and video also had its completely different architectures, images and completely different architecture. Text completely different. And it was even hard to read papers from, like, I was was having a hard time actually reading papers from NLP because I couldn't really understand the underlying, you know, structures of the network and all that stuff. And now I have no problem reading papers from NLP or from any sort of speech and audio processing papers. So Transformers are great because they have just unified all this. And as a result, it's, really easy to also do joint research now with these modalities, you know, it's mm-hmm. it's much easier to actually build without having the necessary skill set or expertise or anything to do research in that domain. These two advances, I think, will, sh- will lead to a lot more work there, hopefully. And I think it makes sense. And I think we, this is a, a direction that we should definitely keep pursuing.
0: Mm-hmm. You mentioned in the context uh, of metaverse uh, as well as in the context of nerf the problem of 3d understanding this is kind of you know one of your home problems you spent a lot of time thinking about this can you talk a little bit about where we are relative to that problem and what you know what that community is thinking about
1: mm-hmm. yeah i mean 3d is I, as i said before i think 3d is going to be the center of emphasis in the coming years from from different perspectives for sure. I think nerves and graphics see 3D from a different perspective and but it will also come into play when we when it comes to large scale learning. I think that we are still not pursuing that as as much as we should because you know it's it's hard. It's a harder task. You're dealing with, you know, the modality is different. 3D data are more complicated than 2D images. And there is definitely a large data set missing in that field right now. Like a data set where you could say, oh, this is a data set where I could do some sort of large scale 3D learning. Do you think that this is changing? And one reason why this is changing in my view and why I'm excited is hardware. Like I'm gonna, I do know this is not product placement, but like this is, you know, iPhone 13. And it has, Mm -hmm. it actually has, I don't know if you guys see, but like the, the, the camera sensors in the back are tremendous. And part of the sensors is a LiDAR camera which captures depth so that means that now you are walking around your pocket holding this sensor (laughs) that you would never imagine that you would actually be carrying some of you might not even know that this is what you actually have in your pocket and all Mm -hmm. of a sudden we can now capture rgbd data in the wild so i do have a reason to believe that you know maybe in two three years from now we might no longer be talking about rgb data that's what we might be talking about rgbd data set and this is all thanks to hardware. So I do think that this is going to open up a huge sort of new, exciting direction for us.
0: Uh, this is maybe a, a basic question, but is there a uh, an image format that includes RGBD? Like does the iPhone 13 in whatever spit out RGBD uh Images or are they great, two separate streams?
1: Great question because I was looking into this the other day. Um, <laughs> so right now it's very obscure how um, the various companies are handling depth and whether they're releasing them. And so this is actually a twofold question. Is first, mm-hmm. I mean, we know the camera captures it, um, right. and we know it's just a, another channel, right? For you for you to store. Uh, the mm-hmm. question is how whether we can host that. So can you have like users upload that, let's say, somewhere and store this data, and in what format? So this is kind of still obscure. There's definitely a lot of apps that allow you to extract that information, which is also why mm-hmm. I've been playing around with them. A lot, mm-hmm. I'm not going to name them, like, but if you you know look around a little bit, you'll find them in App Store, and they extract that information. They actually store it. Uh, I'm the, I am extremely confident that perhaps Apple or other companies will soon sort of do that by default. And the reason yeah. for that is actually very simple. It's not just oh to, you know, satisfy Georgia because she needs an data. Actually, <laughs> depth is very important to create a lot of effects with your images, which a lot of us, you know, care about like the Instagrams and whatever to mm-hmm. get the likes, but like it does, depth does a lot of dynamic
0: create... focus, things like that.
1: Dynamic focus, this 3D, 3D photo sort of effect to give your images a little bit of a 3D uh, aspect. Mm. I think like that's an app already at in, in the Facebook like app. tilt
0: shift kind of look. Y-
1: yeah, like exactly. You know, like just give it a little bit of a like interesting perspective. Mm-hmm. So we know that we want to store depth because like there is also business purpose behind it. So yeah. I do think that we're going to see it being sort of become more commercially available. Hopefully, fingers crossed. I, ho- I hope somebody here does an Apple like <laughs> comes
0: in. This. Yeah, we've we've talked about needing new types of problems in computer vision broadly. Like, do you does 3D create new types of problems? Like all the old problem formulations kind of transfer, like 3D object classification, 3D. Uh, detection. correct, But are there kind of fundamentally new problems that 3D gives rise to?
1: Yeah, I think that there's there's two maybe aspects to this. One is whether 3D can help you build better rep- underlying representations. So this is one. Exactly like we train representations, again, with our static 2D data sets, can we build better representations through 3D? similar to clip where, you know, text may be a different modality. Can you, so can you do better there? And then, yes. And then the next thing is, is tasks. And this is where, you know, this new era that we live in today with a focus on AR, VR, the versus whatever versus those are, they create these new tasks and challenges for us. So you do have your regular object understanding in 3d. You also have your, you know, NERF also requires a 3D understanding to work. So you also have your graphics-related tasks there. And of course, it's our responsibility to sort of build a better suit of tasks in 3D as well to measure performance better. But there is a lot of tasks that will require 3D, and without 3D, they're just not going to be solved at all.
0: Yeah, obviously, most of the images that we're looking at that are 2D images are, you know, representations of 3D scenes. Is there any evidence that solving 3D whatever that means like gets us to 2D and we're you know maybe we're spending too much time on 2D and if we figured out 3D we would get 2D for free
1: yeah i mean absolutely right i mean i think that i would only be satisfied and hopeful that by learning 3D visual representations that you are already solving for 2D i mean 2D is just like the a simple sort of flattening of that space right. So absolutely. I
0: can. I'm asking a more specific question than, I, I, you know, there's kind of the, yeah, that kind of stands to reason. But I'm wondering, like, is there, are there specific problems that, you know, we've solved in, in 3D and then.
1: We found you know, that 2D improves 2, 2D. Yeah. No, I mean, there, of course, there is the th- the pure 3D tasks, which would not be solved by any means. In 2D, mm-hmm. but I feel that in this more sort of image content understanding setting, that we haven't seen this so far, and the reason mm-hmm. is we don't have data sets to see this. Mm. Um, and I think video is a fantastic, actually, first data set to like data format to attack going there. But video comes with so many other challenges that we just haven't seen enough research. And I think we should. I think that we should overcome this.
0: Yeah. So we've talked uh, quite a lot about the research side of things. Uh, have you seen anything interesting happening in either the commercial side of things or in terms of tools and open source mm-hmm. projects, meaning you know, less, less papers and more kind of concrete realizations of some of the things that we've talked about?
1: Uh, yeah, that's a fantastic question. I think that we have definitely seen it's an exciting time I feel for startups and product driven, uh, you know, uh, work because we, mm-hmm. there's a lot of stuff that's already working. Um, I always go back and forth about like the self-driving car industry. I have an idea that they're actually doing <laughs> a lot of progress, Yeah, which of course we don't know because they don't really publish any of the stuff, which makes sense. But I have a feeling that the, like, they're actually sort of, that is moving even though people were less hopeful or something, but judging mm-hmm. from the the amount of startups and the amount of great people that i see join them i yeah. am only to believe that there's stuff happening there that is <laughs> quite important i don't know if you have the same sense
0: yeah i i feel similarly in the sense that there there are definitely waves of enthusiasm about the space and it kind of ebbs and flows one of the comments that you made earlier kind of created this model for me of you know early progress in computer vision was driven by content moderation and kind of maybe you call it Internet 1.0 or whatever, 2.0. The next phase, a lot of focus on computer vision is there's been a lot of this work on autonomous vehicles that, uh, you know, flows into the computer vision community. And so maybe the next big problem is metaverse. Maybe those are like the, the you know, the three big problems that have driven computer vision. That's not like a, a data-based assessment.
1: Correct. I I absolutely agree with that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And so that whole space, I think, is one that, you know, historically, and I think I feel the same now about it. it, is like, I've tended to be a bit more conservative than some folks. And it's mostly, it's less about the, you know, exciting things happening in computer vision and more about, well, two things. One, the predominance and importance of edge cases in the real world. And then two, the whole kind of regulatory, legal insurance, like all the other crap, I I think will limit our ability to get to a world where you walk outside or, or drive around. And, you know, most of the vehicles you see are autonomous. Uh, I still think that that's a way of way.
1: Right. I mean, actually, I believe that we will solve the first one first, like covering all the edge cases. And then I think getting beyond the regulatory part of things, I think that's like an impossible, <laughs> It's just impossible. I don't know. <laughs> Politics is hard, you know? I don't... um, Yeah,
0: people are hard. People
1: are hard, (laughs) yeah. Um, Yeah, definitely. I mean, I have the same sense. I've also been very sort of conservative about it. Also, as a computer vision scientist, I... Would I ever drive a car that I know, you know? So... um, You know, when you know too much, it's kind of difficult. Uh-huh. Uh, but yeah, but I, I am mostly judging it by just sort of seeing all of these like wonderful, amazing, brilliant people that are just joining and in, in creating startups in that field. So it makes me want to think that, you know, maybe there is really a sort of progress happening there that I don't really have a deeper insight into things. I do know, though, that there is, you know, in that similar, similar space, but there's tons of robotic startups. Mm hmm. Uh, and, you know, vision is definitely one component, but it's not, th- I mean, we're moving a little bit away from just purely vision now, but it is, I mean, vision is definitely important, especially for pick and place and all these other robotic tasks. But we're seeing a tremendous amount of, re- of startups in that space, again, made possible by the fact that we now have companies that make commercially available robots for relatively cheap prices. So you can actually mm-hmm. very fast sort of prototype and test various uh, robotic driven applications.
0: Are there any particular that come to mind?
1: I mean, yeah, there um there is definitely the the study by Peter Beagle that comes to mind, which is actually very big. I, I'm blanking on the name, unfortunately. Covariant. Yeah, covariant, definitely. Um and I think they also have like a like a vision component to things. And then there is a lot of other. Uh, uh, there is one that I recently found that I was very excited about, which was a drone. Uh, it was, it's a startup for drones for, uh, that they release it underwater to capture coral in the reefs. Like map the ocean uh, or something. Oh, okay. Yeah, map the ocean, cool. but also understand sort of the progression of how, like the damage that's being done and map that and alert people so that, like, you know, just mm. proactive trying to make that. And I, I, I found that wonderful. Mm-hmm. Like a wonderful use case of sort of that technology. Uh, yeah, I think that these are sort of some of these startups that I've, I you know, Hugging Face, I think, is a very up-and-coming one as well. Um, you know, relying on open source libraries, uh, making projects available fast for people to get to work on. So it has definitely the open source component to it. Um, mm-hmm. And they also have like a scientific component where they're trying to bring pe- people together. Mm-hmm. I want to give a shout out also to to Timnit with her new sort of research organization that she announced a few weeks ago. Absolutely. Uh, and that's, you know, we need, we need that sort of those diverse types of research organizations as well, not just within industry or academia, but also sort of more independent. And so I, I'm very excited for for her and for that initiative. Yeah,
0: that's maybe a, a segue to talking about uh, ethics and responsible AI and the intersection with computer vision, you've alluded to the importance of that several times in our discussion already. I'm curious if you would expand on your thoughts there and where you see the the big challenges and opportunities.
1: Yeah, I think Uh, This is such a hard question because I feel that it requires exactly like all this expertise that we've been building in in software and, you know, how to make models work. We need exactly that, that same amount of energy and effort and emphasis to be put in ethics as well. It shouldn't be a side project or something done by two people in like a you know a thousand people org. No, it should actually be a substantial effort. Try to understand because I we have a lot of work to do in even understanding the issues, let alone being proactive about knowing and especially now in this era of huge data sets and you know crawling the web, we need to be extra careful in what we put out. And I feel that's our responsibility. And you know, we I think that Timnit has been, an like Im- impactful in this field where she mm-hmm. is educating Basically, she's educating us how to do this. I think that's her contribution, and it's a fantastic one. Uh, but we need we need more. We need more.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I would love to spend a few minutes having you look into your crystal ball and share what you see for computer vision. Kind of sprinkled a little bit of this throughout the conversation, but you know, looking forward, where do you think the most exciting opportunities lie?
1: Yeah, I mean, if I if I was you know uh, coming out of you know school, or I was I wanted to see you know what is the most what should I be working on right now? Um, mm-hmm. I would say that right now, computer vision is definitely de- like its route is defined by the applications that we are. More excited about creating and the new experiences we want to create for for people. So AR, VR, three D. I think the metaverse related topics are definitely a huge direction there. I would also look into I think another major field is hardware and computer vision. So how can we make computer vision fast, where things can train faster, more energy efficient, especially as we're moving to these transformer models that are huge and with a lot of parameters that require a lot of energy. So I think this this tandem of hardware and computer vision or deep learning research, I think that's a very exciting one. And yeah, I think that these are definitely two two directions I would passionately pursue and very interested in with, with the second one definitely being not just something that will happen in the next two, three years, but definitely very important, especially when we talk about climate change and all and all these issues that we're faced with today.
0: And is there particular research or company or hardware type that you are following that you find interesting? It sounds like the you don't see the GPU as the final word in acceleration for computer vision.
1: No, I think that NVIDIA is definitely on top of it. And I feel that they will sort of make, you know, that technology will definitely improve. Google is has their own TPUs, like their own processing units. I do think that we might see a revolution uh, with maybe supercomputers, maybe different types of computing. Uh, who knows? Uh, I'm not, I, <laughs> this is hard to tell, hard to predict. Mm-hmm.
0: I guess I, I'm, I'm curious about other predictions, you know, specific to computer vision you might have. And, you know, are, are there areas that you think we'll see, like, the big paper drop in? I guess, yeah, is there something that, like, feels really, really close that uh, you think, you know, can, you know, we'll see a, a, a big drop in the next year or so?
1: Yeah. Um, I think that immediately thinking ahead, I think... The biggest paper drop for me will happen if someone actually replicates that birth moment and CV, mm-hmm. just g- going on to, you know, a big, you know, as we discussed before, just a huge, huge data set and showing just like, not just a couple of points in improvement, but just a revolution analyzing like line of improvements across many tasks. Mm -hmm. I think that's, that's what's going to happen. I'm not like, we'll see if that's next year or two years or ever. Well, who knows?
0: But it's within feels within reach
1: feels within reach. Uh, I'm not sure if it's going to be, I I do. I do really think that we're currently a little bit, it feels like being before the image net moment, uh, in 2012, uh, where, you know, that just completely changed the field. I feel that we are ready and we definitely need that paradigm shift. Definitely. I'm excited. I want it to happen. I hope, I hope it
0: happens. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Georgia, it has been wonderful to reconnect and appreciate all of your insights and thoughts into what's been going on in computer vision and not just what's been going on over the past year, but what we have to look forward to. Thanks so much for taking the time to to chat about it.
1: Thank you, thank you, and I hope it was you know, informative and fun and let's see, let's
0: see what, what's ahead of us. Fantastic, thanks so much, Georgia. All right, everyone, that's our show for today.